0: This podcast is sponsored by WorthPoint. Find out what your antiques are worth at worthpoint.com. I am on Skype to Jerusalem with Dylan Shubb. How are you, Dylan?
1: Hi, Martin. Doing great. How are you?
0: Great. And you have the Griffin's Nest. First of all, I want to talk about you started very young. Can you talk about that?
1: Sure. Well, I I came from a family that really appreciated um, antiques and, and vintage in general. Um, I grew up in South Africa, so it was very colonial in Cape Town. Um, And my mother was already 41 when we were born. So her and my father had been fixing up furniture for a while, and my grandparents had collected a lot of items. So as young as I can remember, I was already watching the Antiques Roadshow. I'm young enough that, (laughs) that I can say I've been watching the Roadshow my whole life. And I used to attend Sotheby's auctions with my mother, so it was a lot of fun. Wow. Uh, Do you mind saying your age? No, not at all. I'm 27. 27.
0: So you've been at this basically all your life.
1: Right. From about the age of six. I mean, I I remember walking around the furniture being fixed up um, at the age of four, because my parents, um, as a hobby together, used to buy in furniture. And then in our garden and in a workshop, had it repaired by some gentleman that they hired themselves, and then they would resell it. So that was kind of a hobby they were doing. So, yeah, I grew up with it all around me.
0: What is the antique business like in your region?
1: Well, Israel's pretty small. I mean, it's a country of seven million, although mm-hmm. it's a country steeped in history. Uh, just yeah. practically speaking, you know, for such a young country and such a small country It kind of takes a few generations for people to start being interested in the local, you know historical items I mean Israeli antiques cannot even be called antiques yet Most of them are vintage, you know when we talk about for example the pitsalo school of art that's been creating silverware in Judaica um, We're only talking 40 years old hmm. So from that point of view uh, it's interesting. But on the flip side, the antiquities market is quite famous over here with a few very well-known, world-renowned antiquities dealers like Sassoon, uh, who has a place uh, quite nearby. And that market is has been here from the very beginning. But as far as antique stores go, there are maybe three or four well-known antique stores in the whole country.
0: Wow, in the whole country. Wow. Now, when you're talking about antiquities, what are the laws like as far as export? Is it real strict that it has to stay within the bounds of the country?
1: Well, when, it, when we talk about uh, Judean antiquities, which would be antiquities, you know, from the periods of the temples, both the first and the second temple and Canaanite antiquities, then we get into difficulties because then you need to get approval from the archaeological institutions that the item was not stolen from a dig. I mean, I I suppose I shouldn't say this, but my great aunt was one of the first tour guides in the country. And she said when they first started in the 40s and 50s, if you saw something when you were on a tour and you picked it up, you put it in your pocket and you took it home. (laughs) So there is a lot of that still going on. Yeah.
0: Well, so... I think it's been long enough where she can't get in trouble.
1: No, no, no. She, she she once used to give a birthday present a while back and a wedding present. She said this is literally what happened. You know, you picked up a few mosaics or you picked up a ritual circumcision dagger or something and you kept it. But now they basically just want to know that it's not from digs. And so you get certification. Mm-hmm. And um, Israel is a leader in, in the what's called the Ayeda con, um grouping, which is basically all of these antiquity dealers, because, you know, they're. you often speak about fakes, but antiquities is one of the easier things to fake, um, because, mm-hmm. you know, the ancients mm-hmm. used, um, although beautiful, rather primitive methods of making. So once you take something, you just age it uh Unless you're dealing with experts, you can quite easily fool them. The London Museum has been fooled a few times.
0: You're fairly young. You grew up in the computer age. So what have you been doing maybe that someone didn't do 20 years ago? Uh, I understand you have quite a following on Ruby Lane and Facebook and all that. So let's let's talk about that, what you're doing.
1: Well, because – as I said, the local market is so small, I tend to be a buyer over here and I sell abroad. Hmm. So I exclusively sell online and the, the the place I've chosen to sell with is Ruby Lane, um, just because they're, they're kind of the middle road between, you know, the eBay mentality of buying and selling online. But at the same time, Ruby Lane's got a lot of strict policies of checking that items are real, and return policies that makes it feel much more like an online uh, shopping mall as opposed to an auction like eBay. Right. Um, so I, I've chosen to sell there. And what I've found in, definitely in the last five years is that social media is exceptionally important. Um, I mean, as you said, I'm I'm literally on all the social media uh, platforms, Pinterest, Facebook, Twitter, Polyvore, Instagram, <laughs> and you, Google+. What, Plus. Can
0: you, wow. Can you talk about a lot of them I've heard of, but I have absolutely no clue about it. I know Pinterest has really cool photo layouts, but I don't really know how this used as a tool. So can you talk about using these um, media as tools to sell?
1: Sure. Um, there is there is general overall use, which what we would call the direct use. In other words, in the previous days in marketing times, um, unless you were a huge group like Coca-Cola... Um, you, you, you gauged your success of marketing by direct response. So if you took an advert out in the newspaper, you kind of wanted to see how many people came to your store and you asked them, you know, how did you find out about us? And that's the direct response. And you touched on that when you spoke on your previous podcast about Facebook. In other words, it's really good to have a direct follow- connection with people you're selling to regularly who may want to see your new items. So that's the direct response. Mm -hmm. But what a lot of people don't realize is there's the indirect response. In other words, Google, Google search, when Google search engine looks into which sites to put at the top of a search, they're really looking at multiple factors. And the most overall important thing to them is popularity of the site. They want to see how often the site's being visited, how much interaction is going on with the site, how many people are talking about that site over the internet and that's where all of these social medias come in very importantly because whether you've got a big following or not meaning whether people are directly buying from your Facebook page or from your Pinterest is unimportant to Google to them what's important is that while wow, this page has so many people interested in it it must be real content and not spam hmm. so that's uh-huh. that's really what is taking a lot of time For even my generation to realize, only the millennials, those born after 2000, kind of get this completely. (laughs) Um, And Google's algorithm is kind of a mystery.
0: And their algorithm changes, from what I understand, about every three months.
1: Right, because they're always trying to close up loopholes. You know, people are always trying to loopholes with spam. They'll put so many keywords, you know, underneath layers and layers of their page in order to try and fool Google's algorithm. So Google is really always trying to move in the right direction because, let's face it, if you would go to a Google search and would keep giving you nonsense, in other words, stuff that's not directly relevant, um, you would stop using Google. Right. You would use another search engine. So Google really has its its own interest – you always try and put the most important content first. When you search for Sotheby's auction or Bonham's auction, you want to get Sotheby's auction. You don't want to get articles of, from Christie's on Sotheby's auction.
0: It can be very frustrating when you're trying to find something and something else pops up.
1: Right. So, so to pull that back, that, that's kind of the second level of marketing that's important, is that it doesn't matter um, so much if the people who are enjoying your Facebook or all these social medias like Twitter are actually your direct clients, as long as they are reposting and retweeting and liking, Google's going to find you interesting. and why is that important? Because basically, when we are looking for online buyers, the most important person we can get is the person who's directly searching for your item. So someone who's searching for a gold vintage bracelet. That's your most important shopper because they're already looking for a gold vintage bracelet. You've done half the work. You don't have to kind of show them a picture and wow them and make them a new collector. So that's your most important group. And that's where where the search optimization comes in. On the second level, of course, is if someone's, you know, following you on Facebook and goes, wow, that watch looks so beautiful. I'm sure I could buy that for a cousin or something. That's that's cream. And that's great. And, you know, we can only hope to, like you say, inspire new investors, inspire children. I mean, I've been amazed. I was looking at the people that follow me on Facebook and I was amazed to see the age group. I mean, there are 12 to 16 year olds, at least 20 percent. Wow. So it's kind of interesting. And I, I'm pretty sure they're not buying just yet. But the mere fact that they're interested was really important to me. So, yes. you know, uh, maybe I should just give a bit of a summary for your listeners. Um, everyone knows, I think, what Facebook and Twitter is. Um, Pinterest is basically online scrapboarding. And the reason it's become so popular is because, let's say, you, you, you're, you're building, you're renovating a new house or you're in doing interior decorating. You can now basically pin from all across the web uh, different pictures that would fit in with your idea, and then you can sit down with your husband, your interior decorator, etc. So you've you've got this amazing board of a virtual uh, scrapbook, basically. Also, I use it a lot for research. Um, for example, I'm very into Royal Dalton, so every time eBay um, has an important sale, I will pin one of those pictures. Um, of that rare piece to a board and I basically keep a visual log and pricing of all of the rare items that are selling in auctions on eBay or other auctions.
0: Are there tags somehow how these things can be searched and found online?
1: Um yeah, I mean you know when you name a board, uh, that board that that's its name. I mean there are many Pinterest boards that are already showing up on the first page of Google. Because you know, if someone's got tens of thousands of followers um, I mean, on Pinterest, I have 11,000 followers. So some of my boards are already showing up on the first and second page of a Google search, as long as it's that direct board. Funny enough, I've, I've got a board called Amazing Castles. I'm really into um, European history. Hmm. And that board shows up in Google.
0: Wow, interesting. What were the, some of the other social medias you mentioned?
1: Um, Polyvore has just kind of started getting off the ground. Polyvore is like Pinterest, but in a commercial sense. Whereas Pinterest, you're just pinning things that are of interest to you, be, be they something you want to buy or just impractically, you know, you, you love to make pictures of, of coffee mugs, you know, or whatever. Polyvore, you're trying to put together um, sets, as they call it. So let's say you're trying to put together a vintage Halloween outfit. You may take um, items from all across the web, a vintage hat, a vintage uh, witch, uh, witch's wand, and put that all together, and then you can go out and literally buy those items. So Polyvore is more with the the commercial aspect, and it's just starting to get off the ground. And then Instagram, I mean, that's completely something of the millennials. I I, I don't know if you've noticed, but it's become very fashionable for people to post pictures of their food, (laughs) including Martha Stewart. Mm-hmm. And um, Instagram is basically an application that automatically takes pictures that you take on your smartphone or smart technology and puts it on Facebook or whatever, wherever else you want to send it. And and that is also important because, again, unlike Facebook, where you're mostly trying to group people that you know, except when you have a face, a face or a group… Um, Instagram and, and Pinterest, you're interacting with people that you don't have to know. If someone just likes your picture, then they can share your picture. So and, and, and one other important point, Martin, is that a lot of people are using Pinterest to show their authority. In other words, mm-hmm. if you're an expert in, let's say, we were speaking about before antiquities, and you make 10 boards on antiquities with really relevant tags like this is a world find from the Metropolitan Museum. This is a world find. You you become an authority. Um, so it really can help your brand in that sense.
0: We're working with basically today's technology, and who knows what's going to come out tomorrow. In your estimation, do you think that the antiques business can just keep alive with whatever changes happen? There may be things invented down the line that I can't even think of.
1: Well, I, I, I think that it's – funny enough, it's going to be – the biggest help for all of us because um, everything's basically moving into the visual and shorthand uh, revolution and what that means is whereas a long article may have been written before if you've got a compelling picture that shows everything clearly and you put the appropriate hashtags which are you know searchable searchable tags or appropriate words that's what's getting interaction today People want things fast, people want things clearly, and I think we're moving into the virtual generation. So I think it's pretty soon, Martin, that we can expect um, 3D imaging of our antiques. I mean, you could be looking on your smartphone and a 3D image could pop up completely to specs of a Ming Dynasty bowl, and that can really give you that hands-on education that you can only get when you go to a museum. Mm. So I think it will make people less intimidated.
0: 3 uh, I'm sure you're right about that. I'm sure that is the future. This auction house that I work with, James D. Julia, in Maine, we have a new turntable-type situation where items will go on a turntable, and if you click on it on our website or even online in the auction platforms, it'll have a rotating image so you can see all sides of something, and that is very helpful and really does help promote it And I think the more the changes are as far as photography and, as you say, 3D, that would be absolutely amazing. That would almost be like holding it in your hands.
1: Exactly, because ultimately when it comes to the Internet, everything's about consumer confidence. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, although it's sad on one hand to lose this aspect of going out hunting and enjoying the find, the fact is from a purely business point of view, um, people value time – over the experience at the moment. Um, So
0: that's
1: true. true. So whatever can give them the full package without, you know, a loss of an aspect, like a loss of seeing it and seeing damage and being hoodwinked, the more they're going to opt for the better time aspect. And you know, something else that's happening translation, automatic, automatic translation is something pretty new, you know, Google translate and all of Mm -hmm. these things. And that's already meant that foreign buyers who, whose English is not their first language are starting to use Ruby Lane, eBay, Etsy much more. I mean, I, I've got something called Google Analytics, so I can see where my traffic is coming from, which countries. And I was laughing with my mother because I have, on an average month, people visiting from about 70 countries.
0: Hmm. Wow, that's, that's so, like this, um, uh, this podcast has about the same.
1: Right. So, And and, and how can they possibly all be speaking the the first level mother tongue type English that I'm writing with on my site? You know what I mean? Obviously, they're using some form of translation like Google Translate. So as that translation gets better, international buyers are going to feel more confident because they're once again able to understand things in their native language um, and have the same shopping experience as everyone else.
0: Now going back to Ruby Lane, I've actually never bought on there or sold on there. Do they have some type of self-policing so if a buyer yes. ha, so a buyer can have confidence in coming in to buy something?
1: Yeah, basically Ruby Lane has a number of processes put in. Firstly, most of them are from the antique world. So Ruby Lane's been around now fifteen years, and um, the a lot of their customer support and staff are people who have come from the antique auction or gallery world. So that helps a lot. Number two, they're always creating articles in education. Like they've created um, a whole site dedicated to reproductions. So helping people understand when vintage turns and stuff are reproductions. Thirdly, there's the aspect that a client can return an item for three um, within three days, no questions asked. So there's that consumer confidence aspect, whereas on eBay, a lot of dealers will say, please check all pictures, no return policy. On on Ruby Lane, you don't have that option. Every person has a chance to return in the same condition they received and no questions asked. And then we have what's called the flagging system. Um, A lot of the shop owners can go to each other's shops, and if we see something that seems a bit dodgy that may bring down the site, we can flag it. Often it's by mistake. Someone, for example, put... Uh, a sterling silver ring with a beautiful red stone and they called it ruby and they meant to put in the title ruby colored. And it was just a bit misleading. So I flagged it. And, you know, that was fine. They corrected it.
0: That makes total sense. And that sounds like a a very good place to buy. So before we move on to some other questions I have, how did you originally find the podcast that I have?
1: It's ironic because I never really use LinkedIn often. I mean, I... I, I keep up with a lot of my colleagues on LinkedIn, but I don't use it that often and I was poking my nose around one of the antique groups, and one of my colleagues had sent me um both an article of of um a, an article that had been done by worthpoint actually of connor and then that article led me to your podcast ah. um, and When I heard your podcast, I was actually at the same time writing a blog article about you know not stepping on on the youngsters. And so it's kind of all tied in. So I, I wrote the blog article for Ruby Lane because store owners are allowed to um, write one blog article a month for Ruby Lane. They actually pay us if if we do it well. Um, but I, I do it because it just gives me such an outreach. I get to speak on topics that I want. But So I wrote that article based on hearing your podcast.
0: Wow, that's great. That podcast kind of went viral anyway. I mean – I was looking at the numbers, and I do believe it's the number one downloaded podcast I ever had. So, And Connor's doing great. He's been on a couple of shows already, Queen Latifah, Good Morning San Diego, and uh, he's doing just fantastic. He even has his own truck now.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I So I, I follow him on Facebook, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm privileged because he actually seems to find time between him and his mother, Amy. Uh, I usually get an email from them once every week or two. Uh, so we've actually been topping on, talking on a number of topics uh, because I don't know a lot about vintage toys, and Connor seems to be a pretty big expert on that. And he's been asking me a lot about um, jade and antique jewelry. Um, So we've been we've been talking about that. And of course, I'm crazy about Royal Dalton, which he comes across a lot at these estate sales, Um, you know, because funny enough, America became uh, probably the biggest collecting group for Royal Dalton. And it's cheaper for them to buy Royal Dalton than the English because, believe it or not, when a person from England buys back Royal Dalton from any country other than England, they have to pay a tax on it, even though it was made in England. So they're a bit put out about that. But it's meant that America and then Australia have become the biggest collectors.
0: Do you have an expertise at all in jade?
1: Uh, Yes. The Asian Asian in general has always been interesting to me because my, my mother and father, before I was born, were in textiles. So they used to travel to Japan a lot. They went to a waving ceremony in, in, at the emperor's palace. And we really were very interested in Asian. I mean, I grew up, you know, sushi is a new fad, but I started having sushi when I was four. Hmm. So Asian in general has been really interesting to us. And I was also privileged that my mentor, the late Basil Knotts, who had one of the main antique stores uh, in Cape Town and the Sotheby's auctioneer, uh, both kind of took me under their wing and both were very into Asian. So I had the opportunity to come into contact with really good Asian items uh, at a young age. And, and most people don't want to let young people touch stuff. So the opportunity for them to trust me, they gave me gloves and stuff, and I was able to literally handle things was really important because there's a lot Absolutely. to do with textures when it comes to, to jade and stuff, the feeling and, you, need, you know, you need to handle it.
0: That's right, and also there are dyed pieces that are dyed, you mm-hmm. know, the, the best colors. And I was at an auction house after a sale, oh, I don't know, three or four years ago in California, and a woman that I knew that worked there came out, and she handed me two pendants. One was in my right hand, one and was, one was in my left hand, and they were jade. And she said, tell me which one sold for $200, and tell me which one sold for 95000 so, yeah. I'm looking at them both, and they're so similar. Just by luck, I guess the right one. But, you know, there's little <laughs> subtleties that can make a jade piece absolutely sell for a fortune compared to another. And it's really nothing you can really describe in a podcast. It, it just has to do with the knowledge of handling and being aware of the dying that does go on. And they've been doing that since the 40s, I understand. Have you ever heard about that?
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's quite, it's, it's been going on a long time. Look, People have been heating gemstones since Roman times, you know what I mean? Uh, Trying to enhance the quality of a stone is not a new thing. People don't realize that. But basic heat treatment was done to sapphires and rubies since Roman times. But but the dyeing is really important to know in jade because it kind of destabilizes the item. An item that is being dyed has been dyed has a much higher risk of cracking.
0: I had never heard that before. That's really interesting.
1: When they sell, you know, you see a lot of it on eBay, new jade pieces, and they look stunning from a decorative point of view. They're lovely. But they've been heavily oiled in order to maintain them like the wood.
0: Oil on a piece of jade, an instant uh, red flag? Yes,
1: i mean it's it's unless they've specified that they've chosen to oil it, but yes, people don't want to see it because it's it's kind of going to mess with the patina Jade funny enough does have its own patina it's very subtle it's not as obvious as something like silver and wood, but you you learn to notice it you know i mean I will say. I've got a buyer. I've got a number of buyers who bring me items, and I always say to them with jade, I say the, the red flag you want to be looking for immediately is if it gives you an impression that it, looks, that it could be plastic, don't go near it.
0: Right. I was at a big antique show back here called Brimfield in Massachusetts, and mm-hmm. I walked by an old-time dealer, and I saw in the showcase uh, a jade translucent bowl, and I'm looking at it from outside the case, and I said, wow, this is really – nice can I look at that bowl and she handed it to me and as soon as it touched my hands I realized that it was resin and not even jade (laughs) and so I called her on the piece you know just saying hey you realize this is not jade it's warm to the touch and it, it just you can just feel it's plastic and she says no I bought that as as jade so you know for the person that is not aware they could have certainly bought that as jade and if it's warm, right. warm to the touch, you, you know, red flags should go up on that too.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Connor, funny enough, Connor mentioned that to me. <laughs> I was smiling. He sent in an email that, that he's always been told, you know, he needs to put it to his cheek. And unless it feels cold, it's a red flag. So I said to him, <laughs> absolutely.
0: <laughs> All right. What is the most unusual antique that you have found in your region as far as coming from another part of the world?
1: There's a lot of good mice in here. A lot of a lot of yeah, because there were a lot of German Jews that were fleeing the war Mm. um, and they came with and they came with considerable amounts of money. And the other area that's of interest is there. There were a lot of people that were traveling to Japan and China. So there are some top, top, top ivory pieces that I've spotted over the years of here. I'm, I'm currently out of ivory. It's a new thing. As of the last six months, I, I now no longer sell any ivory. Uh, that's where the world's going at the moment. So I don't want to upset my clients.
0: Are you saying because of all the ivory laws and what's going on? With- yes,
1: basically in the online world, Ruby Lane, Etsy, and eBay have all collectively agreed to not be selling animal products until such time um, as that market starts to die down. Um, of course, it's not fair to penalize antique items. I mean, Victorians were massacring animals left, right, and center. You know, the Art Nouveau movement was taking bugs and doing everything with anything. Um, and, you know, those animals already died. I mean, we can't even blame those who are, who are making ivory out of mammoth tusks. The mammoth never even existed. It's been extinct before we even started all That's of this right. conservation. Yep. But at the same time, until that demand wanes, we kind of need to go to the other extreme uh, because we can't expect people from a picture or authorities um, at ports to be able to discern if something's mammoth or elephant or walrus or antique or modern. And I, I think that's fair. I'm, I'm supporting that. Um, I, would I do some private deals? Sure. You know, but, but at the same time, it's, we, we do need to support that. Look, I just got offered a rhino head. And the rhino has been dead 80 years. Um, and I declined because I, I really don't want to be dealing in that right now. It's it's upsetting a lot of people.
0: I agree 100%. That's great. As time marches along here, what do you think is the most important thing that happens in the antique world?
1: I think that even though everyone talks about you know, research has become so easy, um, at the same time, uh, we, we need to use online as a tool and not as as our detriment Um, you know often people go onto the antique roadshow and then afterwards they say wow i have something that looks just like that but it's only it's a different color or it's a different this or different that and i think we still need to uh, make use of museums we need to have specialists that we can turn to and we need to have be purchasing from reputable dealers that give us money-back guarantees and stuff i think that's the most important thing same with auction houses
0: well, you're preaching to the choir. I 100% agree with everything you just said there. And it's funny. I, I share an office with James Callahan, who's the Asian expert on the Antiques Road Show. And he says, the quote is, oh, I have one just like that except mine's square. And uh, not round. And he goes into this whole dialogue. It's pretty funny. Well, you've been a real pleasure, Dylan. And, you know, I'd like to have you back on the show again sometime if you're up for it.
1: Sure, anytime. It's a pleasure as well. I, I, I'm glad that these podcasts exist, Martin. It's really nice that there's such interest um, globally um, in continued education and just, you know, in, in enthusiasm in the industry.
0: Yes, that was the whole genesis of uh, at least trying to make my little part in that happen. But thanks so much. And until next time, we'll talk to you later. Bye, Martin. This podcast is sponsored by WorthPoint. Find out what your antiques are worth at worthpoint.com.